Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. And would the U.S. have a military response if Putin does launch a chemical weapons attack? I'm not going to speak about the intelligence, but but uh, Russia would pay a severe price if they use chemicals. And with that, President Biden walks away, engages the conversation about there even announcing more. New economic- even more going on between the United States and Russia, saying there will be even more response. But do we believe him? What will that response be? Is this because Russia clearly isn't stopping, even though it seems that Vladimir Putin is losing in many, many ways? Speaking about the Russian oligarchs. So taking a further step, abandoning imports of goods from several signature sectors of the Russian economy, including seafoods, vodka, and diamonds. And we're going to continue to squeeze Putin. The G7 will seek to deny Russia the ability to borrow from leading multinational institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Putin is an aggressor. He is the aggressor. And Putin must pay the price. But what does that mean if you're not even willing to allow Poland to hand over 30 MiGs that the Ukrainians could use in their own defense? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It is so good to be with you. Major Mike Lyons joins us right now, retired United States Army West Point graduate military analyst. You see him everywhere. Uh, remember, he started with us people. That's how it began. Uh, and, and sir, before I get into what it is that President Biden said uh, today with uh, a, what I think is a hastily put together uh, statement, uh, let's talk about what's going on with the Russian military because we hear two things happening simultaneously. First, that they are losing, that Putin is losing this war. The Ukrainians have stood up in a way that nobody expected, and the Russians were unbelievably ill-prepared. They don't have a military that can handle the first shot coming their way. And at the same time, we hear about them controlling the eastern part of Ukraine, the ability to close that off based on going up and down uh, the, the river to the east of the river. And we have this, this convoy that has now moved to the tree line outside of Kiev, and it looks like we're getting ready to see a massive assault tonight. So which one is it? Is this Russian military on the ropes, or is this Russian military just getting started? Thanks for having me back, Tony. I, I think it's Russian military on the ropes. I think more indications show that the Ukraine military is fighting them to at least a stalemate. And while they're taking a pounding um, by their artillery and some of the strategic weapons in these certain cities and built-up areas, and, and I think one of the most overused terms is the Russian playbook, you know, kind of what that means. Um, and, and right now they're reverting back to that because the blitzkrieg did not work. Um, I was surprised that it didn't in some level, but then we saw that they were not able to coordinate fires from air, land, and even and even sea. Um, you know, why haven't they moved on Odessa right now? Why? Because they don't control those areas in the south along the Black Sea that they wanted to. They still really don't control Mariupol, where they had that attack on the hospital. They're, they're having tremendous problems in Kharkiv there with, uh, in the east. And it's allowed um, the, the uh, you know the kind of the, the Russian forces have not been able to kind of link up, cross over, and and help what's really a lost effort taking in Kiev itself um, in the city. Uh, they're moving as fast as pond water. They are losing people and material at a rate that they can't sustain. 
They still have numbers on their side, no question about it, but they've created the rain military has created a meat grinder. And at that point right now, I think there's a lot of Russian soldiers that are questioning, you know, what the heck they're doing there and, and, and how this is going to end. But we're not hearing about mass levels of defection. And, and, and that's another part of this that is very bothersome. We're not hearing actually much of anything. I, a couple days ago, read uh, the stories that said that 11,000 Russian troops have been killed. And I said to myself, and I believe I said on air, if 11,000 Russian troops have been killed, that's devastation for the Russian military. That's 11, 12 days, 11,000 troops, that's insane. I could not verify the number. I cannot verify, Major Lyons, the amount of Russian soldiers dead, the amount of Ukrainian soldiers dead. The only number that comes close to verification is the over 2 million we have in refugees. Can mm-hmm. you tell us how many Russians have been killed in this thing and what percentage that is of the forces they've had in play here? Yeah, we have kind of a high, medium, low. The U.S. government is saying about 3,000. Ukraine, obviously, is a little bit higher at the, the top end. They're saying you know, nine to 10,000, and the Russians are saying 6,000 themselves. I think if the Russians are saying that number, then it's likely more than that. And we know that there's usually 3x in terms of three times the amount of casualties that they have. But you just look at the pictures that, that have come back from, from the media sources there and from you know, well, like we talked about, Tony, two weeks ago, like this whole thing's going to be on TV now. Unlike what happened in Syria with Russia and what happened in other places, this you just can't not open up the Internet and see what's happening. That that tank battle that took place yesterday where the tanks were all in a column and literally the Ukraine military plinked them off one at a time. So I got and, – and, and the numbers for the tank um, destruction alone are just staggering. We, we wouldn't tolerate losing those kind of tanks and having that kind of losses. So um, I think they're in the thousands. They're, they're definitely way more than they expected at this point. They're more than any of us would expect if we were doing this military operation ourselves. And it's, it becomes an exponential race of at some point the, they're not going to be able to sustain it. And, and, and again, Ukraine wins by not losing, by fighting this thing to a stalemate. And that's really where they are today. And without anything else that is telling me that that situation is going to change on the ground anytime soon. Talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, West Point graduate, military analyst, M.A.J. Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, M.A.J. Mike Lyons on Twitter if you'd like to follow him. In, in conversations I've had with some other people, the, the, the following keeps coming back to me. And I believe this to be true, and I want you to agree or disagree and push back or, or, or mm-hmm. give any uh, thoughts that you will. The idea that Putin might lose this thing by fighting to a stalemate, as you just discussed, or might lose uh, Entoto because his military, it turns out, are the most ill-prepared group that we've ever seen. Uh, mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the nuclear arsenal, I would say let's send three battalions into Moscow and celebrate Fourth of July there. That's how easy it would be to take the Russians. They don't seem to have anything on the ball at all. That's what I'm learning from this. Their point was was that even if Putin's losing, he can't lose that he will do what is necessary to show a win. So that it is it brings up the conversation of the tactical strike, the nuclear tactical strike, all of the things, the, the chemical strike, all the things that we are scared to bloody hell about, and rightfully so, Putin cannot be seen as losing. So mm-hmm. are the, is, is that the right analysis, that even if he's losing on the ground, as you're describing it, in the end... He can't lose because he was willing to do the thing, and he may have to do the thing to win. Otherwise, how does he stay in power? How does he? How does he keep a sanity? Well, I, I don't. I see. I don't think he he wins now at this point because he, he if winning is controlling a Ukraine with twenty million 
men, which is will still be left over there, and and and, and the fact that uh, um, his army is being destroyed in place, he's not being reinforced um, and traded down. I, I don't see, I don't call that winning. Um, he's been a pry in the rest of the world. There's no question that American soft power and the world soft power is now fundamentally against him. So he's got to you know, live to survive and, and thrive in another day. He's got a population that's aging, that uh, is an economy that's crashing, and he's, he really has a, a challenge of, of, of a revolution that could take place inside. Now, I don't always bet on that like we've talked about before. But um, I think in some ways he's already lost. The question is how much of his military gets destroyed. And, and, and the other side to that, though, the dirty little secret is we actually really couldn't do much right now except from the air, except from strategic weapons. We don't have the troops on the ground in order to, to go after what, um, what, what it would take in order to you know, kind of clean up the, rem- the remnants of, of the Russian military as it's uh, pretty much scattered around Ukraine all right, right now, the army in particular. I, I find myself in a place of disagreement with you. And the place of disagreement comes from a a philosophy Mm -hmm. in that if you feel you're going to lose, you, you, you did all of this and you're going to lose and you figure, okay, I'm not going to be able to get any of the land. I'm not even going to be able to keep Luhansk and Donetsk, which keeps coming up as a conversation of maybe Mm -hmm. that's the gimme that the Ukrainians give to achieve some kind of peace. If you're Vladimir Putin, don't you burn it all down on the way out? Don't you do whatever you can to Chernobyl to cause a problem? Don't you do whatever you can to nuclear power plants to cause a problem? Isn't there something worse that happens if Putin loses? Well, it's in the boundary of Ukraine. I know that sounds cynical to say, but that's really what this whole thing is about anyway. Um, As long as this boundary remains the country of Ukraine, while it is, is, is horrific to talk about it from, again, from a straight military perspective, if that damage stays there, then kind of it is what it is. I, I, this is the reason why, we, frankly, we can't put fighter pilots there. We can't, we can't move things into it. We, we put a Patriot battery in there, for example, that will help air defense, sure, but we start firing missiles. Next thing you know, we're outside that boundary if a missile crosses over into Russia or something. That this is where he knows that what he has. And so, so we've, again, we first thought that he wasn't going to take Ukraine by destroying it, but that's really what's at stake right now. I, th- I think that's what the end game is here for him, and it still fundamentally isolates Russia, but, but maintains the boundary inside that country. Now let's talk about two things about U.S. policy, sir. First, I agree in, in, in that I, don't, I have never advocated for, nor do I advocate for, putting U.S. troops in Ukraine, nor do I advocate for a no-fly zone, because I believe that Senator Marco Rubio is correct. It is uh, putting us at war, because not only would you have to be willing to shoot down fighter jets uh, across Ukraine, you would have to take on, and you've discussed this, the surface air missiles that exist in, in Russia. You would have to engage those things. But this whole fight about Poland and sending the MiGs to Ukraine and the United Mm -hmm. States clearly not wanting this to happen. I look at this as a tremendous weakness from Joe Biden. And this is the thing that will haunt him, not only to Ukrainians, but to Europeans possibly as a whole. That here's Poland saying, look, we've got the planes, the MiGs, the MiG-29s that you're used to, Ukraine. Take them. And the United States not only isn't full-throatedly behind it, they're kind of playing against it. Why is that? 
Well, we've done a bad job of talking out loud and coming up with these ideas out loud. And we've, we've seen that maybe it's the social media world we live in, but we've kind of float things out there. Like what Blinken said initially, I, I watched the initial reports of this go down where um, literally they asked analysts right on TV as soon as they found out, hey, what do you think about this good idea? And people were creating this Lend-Lease program, and we were hearkening back to the Second World War and how we helped the Brits. But but like everything else, when you dig through it, you, you get you know the, the devil's in the details. And you look at the tooth to tail, for example, that, that's great to send planes to Ukraine, but how are you going to support them? How are you going to fuel them? How are you going to get them there? They're going to cross, again, they're going to back to that border. They're going to cross a border from a NATO country into Ukraine. What does Russia now think? Russia now thinks this attack is coming from NATO. So, they're, they're, again, there's just so much complexities around this based on the situation on the ground. It's one thing to bring lethal aid through what's really a porous border between Poland, Ukraine, Romania. Ukraine, Slovakia, Ukraine, places that have um, openings where the Russians are finally figuring out that they got to close those things down. Um, but when you come from the sky, I, it just creates a different signature path that um, sends a whole completely different signal. I would argue that you allow the Poles to come to Ukraine, they fly them out, and the next thing you know, you wake up in the morning like, hey, what happened to my planes? Oh, well, I guess Tommy took them. And it's, it's like a New York street deal, and you forget all about it. I, I, I am very bothered by our inability to think outside the box uh, in, in, in these situations, because I would rather the Ukrainian people be able to handle their own no-fly zone, because I don't believe the United States should. And this brings us to the part two conversation about mm -hmm. Russia and misinformation, uh, Sun Tzu, all warfare is, is deception. And mm -hmm. now you've got Russia and China making the claim that the problem here is all these uh, bi biological research labs, and they mean biological warfare research labs, that exist in Ukraine that are run by the United States. You've got people like Jennifer Griffin over at Fox News debunking this left and right. Jim Garrity has written some very good pieces about it. Then you have people saying, whoa, 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 do these labs exist? Oh, look, there are these labs, and what are they there for? And it's a lack of trust in, in uh, American institutions. Is there anything you know about these labs and should we be paying attention to this argument from Russia and China? Because this seems, again, like deception as opposed to anything I should be worried about. I think it's a distraction. I think that you listen to the Pentagon and what they're saying, that it's a distraction. I think that there might possibly have been some experiments that took place between us and Ukraine scientists back at a certain day. But to kind of, to kind of project it that they're all there now, I do think that um, once the war started in Ukraine, that all of those locations went on a war footing, and if that was the case, anything that was a risk of falling over into the enemy was destroyed. So, so even at the most covert areas of operations, uh, people recognize that that couldn't fall into enemy hands. So, so I think if that, even if it was the case, those tents got shut down pretty quickly and those shops closed up. Um, so I don't think there's necessarily anything that the Russians could take. Um, I saw that exchange between Victoria Nuland and, and Marco Rubio again exists more or less in the in the blame world. But um, I, I, from my perspective, from what I've seen, the, the, the document I've read, they might have had some things in the past. But I'd like to think once they went on a war footing, everything was destroyed. Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us. We will talk again soon. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. Talk dirty to me. Talk dirty to me. So we woke up to this stupid cold and then a little bit of snow. I mean, a, a dusting. 
more than anything, at least it was here in Northern Command. Uh, it turns out that Carmel is Northern Command, guys. I didn't, I didn't know that was the case, but it turns out that that's the way it is. Tony Katz, Tony Katz uh, today. And then uh, what we're unsure about is where the snow is tonight. Like, does it really start? Like, like, like look out your window. Has it, has it really started? Is, 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 is it, is it going to get much worse uh, th- than this? And, and how long? I mean, if I'm looking at some of these forecasts, what I've got is our area is is hit i'd say starting uh starting at like really ah it's starting eh, kind of started already but really we're in the thick of it until at, at like four and then for for northern counties like boone and hamilton it, kind of out of it by by the, the the evening by about nine kind of gone and then by by the overnight it, it's it's completely out of our way uh and then you know basically along the Ohio River is where it's at. And then we pick up these stupid cold temperatures. Like in the 20s and stuff, maybe we'll get into the 30s. I got some people now saying we'll be a little bit warmer. I I ain't buying. So do we have an inch of snow even? Will we get two inches? I, I don't know. But I think it's just questionable enough to totally screw up an, an afternoon commute. Totally, what do you call it? The evening commute. Totally possible to screw all this up. Uh, so, so be listening to WIBC and WIBC.com. Follow uh, Matt Bear. Do you follow Matt Bear? Uh, uh, hashtag Matt in Traffic. I should say hashtag at Matt in Traffic uh, on Twitter at WIBC Traffic. Do that. Uh, if you're listening to Hammer and Nigel uh, starting at, at 3 p.m., they will, uh, they'll have it. They'll have every last bit of what's uh, going on. It's, it's just one of those things that. I've looked at it four ways from Sunday and a couple different people, a couple different groups. You know, we work with Wish TV and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I I don't, I don't see where this is going to, how, how this, how this goes. It's either going to be absolutely terrible or it's going to be absolutely nothing. And other people are like, yeah, we'll have like snow up to an inch. Okay. I don't believe them. That's my problem. That's my problem. I don't, I don't believe them. I have no faith as you don't, in Indiana weather. So all I'm saying is be careful. Basically what I'm at. Basically where I'm at. I had a conversation earlier today uh, that I'm going to share with you about what took place in the State House. And now that the session is over, what can we expect Governor Holcomb to sign? What should have gotten through that didn't? And, 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 and what might be coming back? And I know there are a lot of people on the political left who wanted to scream, culture war, culture war, culture war. Well... Is it going to come back next session? What do I want? I'll share that with you. Coming up. Keep it right here. Facebook Tony Katz Radio. Everything at TonyKatz.com. Get the podcast. It's free. And it comes with a free bowl of soup. It does not come with soup. This is Tony Katz today. So part of Joe Biden's talk today was about ending trade status with Russia. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. And he talked about, you know, the things that he was going to make a move on 
and how he was going to make a move on them. Such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Putin is an aggressor. He is the aggressor. And Putin must pay the price. He cannot pursue a war that threatens the very foundations, which he's doing, the very foundations of international peace and stability, and then ask for financial help from the international community. The G7 is also stepping up pressure on corrupt Russian billionaires. We're adding new names to the list of oligarchs and their families that we're targeting. Now, you might say, what does a a rich Russian have to do with anything? Well, the rich Russians could be where Putin gets his power from, and thus, that's why the sanctions go that way. Again, I will tell you, I'm I'm fine with sanctions. As as you may have heard in my conversation with uh, Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, I don't believe in sending in troops, and I don't believe in the no-fly zone. That is not for us to do. But I do disagree with him wholeheartedly on the idea that if you were to take these uh, Polish um, planes, right, the, the former Russian MiGs that Poland now has, and give them to Ukraine, that could be seen as an act of war from NATO. Oh, tell Russia to pound sand, do the thing. And let them know, hey, that's the least of what we can do. You want us to do the most of what we can do? Are you sure? You can't handle the Ukrainians. They're kicking your ass. You're stuck in a swamp. You're stuck in a swamp. Your soldiers wet themselves. Probably like you do. I would start sending out propaganda that Vladimir Putin wears a diaper. That'd be me. Oh, oh, you know that he views himself as this big, virile guy. He looks in the mirror shirtless. He's like, one day, I'll have a physique like Ari Castle. That's what he says. That's what he says. That is what he says, producer Ari. That's what he says. That is what he says. Hold on, I don't think Ari believes that's what he says. No, that is what he says. That's totally what he says. We're putting that out. You gotta, you gotta hit him in the manhood. You gotta hit him in the manhood and dr- drive him crazy. But don't worry about it. You send in the damn planes. So I don't have an issue with sanctions. I don't have an issue with the sanctions on on, on the oligarchs. I, I'm, I'm less certain about how I feel about taking people's yachts. I don't get to determine how he got the money, or the, the oligarch. I can't. That, that is different. The, and, and, and don't ask me why it's different. It is different. I think I need a little more thought on that one. But right now in my head, it's different. I could be, be swayed. But the sanctions I'm good with. And the president continued. And we're increasing coordination among the G7 countries to target and capture their ill-begotten gains. They support Putin. They steal from the Russian people. And they seek to hide their money in our countries. They're part of that kleptocracy that exists in Moscow. If you want to argue that they steal and it's a violation of international law, you go right ahead. But if... You can't prove that. You're only going to say that. And you're dealing with Russian law. I'm not sure what you get to do there. But maybe I'm splitting hairs. It's a war and you're just trying to apply pressure. Maybe since it's not happening to American citizens, I don't think about it uh, the same way. Maybe, just maybe, sanctions are meant to be tough for a reason. And the reasons that the president is giving are, are, are less consequential. Maybe, well, look, these are all the things we do before we start shooting at people. 
Which, of course, brings us to the question of should we be shooting at people at all? And again, um, that moment may very well come, but it's not going to come right now. If there is an attack on a NATO ally, we're going to have to. Because if we don't live up to the NATO treaty, if Biden doesn't live up to the NATO treaty, not only would, would, should no one ever trust us again, the country is not what it was. I'm going to leave it there. Because there are things happening outside of Ukraine. And some of the things happening outside of, I, by the way, I should say, I won't lie, I, I, I worry about whether or not Joe Biden has what it takes to actually defend the NATO ally. I think treaties matter. I think if you say to somebody, I'm going to be your friend, it has to matter. It can't just be on the paper. One of the things we've seen in the Russian soldier is that when the first bullet got fired their way, they wet themselves and they scattered. They lost themselves. And the key to a a strong military is being able to keep everybody in line and moving forward, advancing on the enemy while they're firing at you. Normandy is more than just a battle. Normandy is the most fundamental example of moving forward. You want to talk about an outrageously disciplined military? Storming the beaches at Normandy. What, uh, in, in, in our most recent history, what could be more stunning of an example? And I would love to find out from Germans uh, who, who survived that, what they must have assumed when these U.S. troops just showed up, started pouring out, they were getting killed left and right, and those who survived kept moving forward and advancing the, the beaches and climbing the cliffs and taking the positions. What that was like. How, was it demoralizing? Was it stunning? Did you start to recognize what an American is all about? Think of the moment. It's something else. I don't know. I, I wasn't planning on talking about that, but just got me in a in a in a in a, in a place, and, and and the idea that that Biden, if there was a NATO ally that was attacked, wouldn't like I, I I I'm not saying that he wouldn't. I'm saying that I don't have any faith in him at all. I think that's really where it's at. I don't have faith that he would or that the country would, and and I believe that the country has to. And if we don't do that, then then what are we? Is 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 a, is a is is the question, and that question does pop it in my mind more often than it should but things are also happening uh locally specifically with the general assembly eric berman joins us right now chief political correspondent at 93 wibc uh, and we have been following the end of the session and there are things causing controversy and things that have gotten through without issue uh of course constitutional carry got put into another bill and then put into another bill and then passed the senate the only question is are we going to see this signed by governor holcomb um too soon to tell as with the as with most things that come to the governor's desk uh, you know there's several bills he's already signed but the ones that pass at the end of the session and especially of course controversial bills that pass at the end of the session those there's always a little bit more question about there's a there's additional question about this one because as 
legislators on both sides of this issue would tell you. Uh, the state's police superintendent, Doug, Doug Carter, came out strongly against it, said that a vote for the bill was a vote against law enforcement. And opponents pointed to that, as you see, this is the state's top, top police officer. Um, opponents, uh, sorry, supporters of the bill said uh, that this is rude. Of course, we support law enforcement. But that carries some weight. You know, this is a, a guy that Governor Holcomb appointed to that job uh, when he first took office. The governor has not commented on the bill itself, but he has said he supports Carter's passion. He's not condemning what, what he said. So it suggests where the governor may be on this, but the bottom line is where we started. We just don't know until he either announces his signature or announces his veto. So let's take a look at what has gotten through that we were surprised actually made its way through and what has gotten through, what hasn't gotten through. Uh, uh, you know, that we, 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 we have sometimes surprises. You have sometimes expectations. What's the surprise that got through and is making its way to the governor's desk? Um, you know, I'm a little surprised that the tax cut passed. This is something where House Republicans seemed to be by their set by themselves. Uh, Senate Republicans, even before the session started, were saying, uh, really, this might not be the best idea. This is something we might want to leave till next year. Um, it didn't change when the governor came out in favor of it a week ago. And in fact, went deeper. The, uh, the final tax rate, if everything happens, is going to be 2.9 percent, which is lower than what the House had proposed even. Once the governor came out in favor, it was clear that uh, there was a sea change, that something was going to pass. But if you had asked me two weeks ago, I'm not sure I would have said this would pass. You might have seen a big tax cut bill next year. You still might, for that matter. But if this is something where the House kept pushing and kept pushing and got it done. So what is the one that didn't get through? And you're like, huh, I thought that would happen. Right? I'm, I, I couldn't yeah. put, put my finger on it, so I was hoping you could. Yeah, I don't know that there are any. There, are, there were three big, well-scrutinized bills that didn't go through, and I'm not sure it's a complete surprise that they didn't. Of the three, it would probably be the critical race theory bill. Um, that certainly had momentum in other states. Um, it got, you know, again, this is one where the House was pushing. This got killed, remember, in the Senate back in January because they didn't have the votes. The House kept pushing on it, revived it. And in the end, the Senate looked at it again and said, you know, we still don't have the votes. I'm a little surprised that they didn't at least get a uh, watered down version of that through. Um, so that would probably be the big surprise in terms of things that didn't make it to the finish line. So now this this brings us, of course, to kind of like the after effects. This is the first session I've witnessed in my time in Indiana, where e even more so than RIFRA. I wonder if we have, I would say the Democratic Party has tried very hard to set a, a narrative that this is, uh, this was the culture war session, right? That, that's been the thing. Now, never mind where I am on that, which is fine about that. You got to wonder whether or not that has had any effect on the Republican Party. Some of these things, so for example, 1041 does go to the governor's desk. That is about uh, uh, boys and girls sports, and, and there's a question as to whether the governor's going to sign that. The critical race theory things, uh, how things are, are taught, that didn't go forward. Do the Republicans have the appetite to bring this back next year? Is this now part of a conversation that Hoosiers want in the General Assembly? 
Um, there, there's no question it'll be brought back. There'll definitely be somebody who wants to introduce it. Whether it advances next year, I think, is going to have a lot to do with the election returns. You know, if you see a bunch of results, not just in Indiana, but across the country, that look a lot like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, where he rode that issue uh, essentially to an upset victory. There were other things, but I think most people would say that was the big thing that turned the tide, um, including the national environment. Um if you see a bunch of results like that nationwide, that puts more more wind in the sails. If uh, if there's a rejection of that, if you have a bunch of states saying, wait a minute, what are you doing? Um, I'm sure the appetite for that will, will go down dramatically. The other thing that might change the conversation there, the argument both on that bill and the material harmful to minors, quote unquote, bill, the one that uh, basically had to do with sexually explicit material. Right. Both of those, both of those, the argument against was, look, schools can already deal with this. You say your school's not listening to you, call, you, call your superintendent. You don't like uh, what you get from the superintendent, call the Department of Education. We don't need to set up a criminal or civil court process. And that, among other reasons, is what brought both of those bills down. If if by this time next year, I should say by January next year, if parents feel like, yeah, I'm being listened to, I complained about this book and uh, and they listened to me or I talked to the teacher and I understand this better now. The appetite will parents- be lower. The appetite will exactly. be lower. I get that. That was Eric Berman, chief political correspondent, 93 WIBC. I appreciate him taking the time. Yeah, it's it's possible the appetite will be lower. But I think that the Indiana Democratic Party and some others are kind of thinking that if you scream culture war enough, uh, it's going to make people cower. Oh, no, 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 no. Me, personally, I've been wanting this culture war for years. I've been pushing it. I want to win. I'm going to win. I don't. I think there's many people, uh, many Hoosiers, just like me, wanting to win this thing. So, so if if the argument is, oh, they'll get tired of pushing those things. Those things are about the protection of children and keeping what I would consider to be predatory types and styles away from kids. Uh, I I don't I don't think we stop because they're not stopping, and the predator needs to be stopped. And if you say to me, uh, it's not predatory to teach history, I agree. It's predatory to teach kids that they're guilty for their existence. And if it's not predatory, how about just downright disgusting? How about downright despicable? How about if you have transition closets, it is predatory. And how about if you're trying to sexualize children, it is predatory. There's a lot that parents need to do to protect their children, and they should, and they shouldn't be ashamed to discuss it. They shouldn't be ashamed to fight for it. I, I favor the teaching, the totality of history, the good, the great, the bad, and the ugly. And I favor protecting children. I didn't think those would be such radical positions. I'm Tony Katz. Russia losing their most favored nation status. A ban on Russian vodka. And diamonds and seafood. Where am I going to get my caviar now from? From now. Wow, look at that. I'm already so flustered. I can't even speak the English language. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. So good to be with you on Facebook. Tony Katz Radio. Can we discuss that Kamala Harris is just not capable for the job? Did you hear this one right here? The UN has set up a process by which... 
There will be a review and investigations, and we will, of course, participate as appropriate and necessary. But we all watched the television coverage of just yesterday. That's on top of everything else that we know and don't know yet based on what we've just been able to see. And because we've seen it or not doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But just limited to what we have seen. Holy crap. I don't know what she's talking about. No one knows what she's talking about. She's in Poland. She's there with the president of Poland. She's not making any sense. She doesn't make any sense. It, 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 it is clear as day. She's in over her head. Kamala Harris is not bright. Kamala Harris is not capable. End of list. Anybody who tries to defend that, out of their tree. But the best, the best thing I've seen all week came from Twitter. Some guy named Bruce who tweeted out, I was in a conservative coffee shop outside of Topeka, Topeka, Kansas. And I overheard a group of conservatives saying they don't want to admit it to anyone, but they all really approve of the job Biden has been doing. That story did not happen. <laughs> I don't. What's a what, conservative coffee shop? I don't know. What is a conservative coffee shop? I never heard of a thing in my life. That you know what we call a conservative coffee shop? A bar. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Twitter is sometimes a treat. <laughs> I'll catch you Monday, everyone, on Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Until then, take care.